walk you through the passage, and then I'm going to take us to some practical um, application. So when we were last in the Gospels, we took a little break over Advent in the month of December uh, to preach some Christmas messages, but where we left off in the Gospels, if you remember, Jesus is heading on his way to the cross. He's on his way to Jerusalem, and he's giving additional teaching about what the kingdom of God looks like as he's on his way. But as he's going, he's ministering too. He's healing the sick. He's embracing the broken, because this is what Jesus does everywhere he goes. He never, he never stepped away from that call and that commission that God had on his life, his father had on his life as the son of God. So he's doing that all along the way. If you recall, Matthew 18 was Jesus' teaching on relationships, how we should relate to one another, resolve conflicts with one another, and then he moves to marriage relationships and sexual relationships. We talked about those things the Sunday after Thanksgiving, which was the last time that we were in Matthew together. But today's passage, on the heels of that, is about a man who gets confronted with the condition of his heart Because Jesus forces him to examine his priorities. And when our priorities get revealed, our hearts also get revealed. When when we can see what it is that we prioritize, it tells us something about the condition of our hearts. But to fully understand the passage, Jesus' interaction with this man, we'll begin reading about Jesus' interaction with kids. Because it provides a contrast to his interaction with this man. It's often our practice to stand in honor of God's word, so I'd like to ask you to stand. The reading will be on the screen behind me, or you can follow follow along in your Bible or on your phone. But we're going to begin reading in Matthew 19, verse 13. Then people brought little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them and pray for them, but the disciples rebuked them. Jesus said, let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. When he had placed his hands on them, he went from there. Just then, a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good, Jesus replied. There is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, keep the commandments. Which ones, he required. He inquired. Jesus replied, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother, and love your neighbor as yourself. All these things I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad, because he had great wealth. Then Jesus said to his disciples, truly I tell you, It is hard for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, I tell you, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. When the disciples heard this, they were greatly astonished and asked, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Peter answered him, we have left everything to follow you. What then will there be for us? Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, at the renewal of all things, when the Son of Man sits on his glorious throne, you who have followed me will also sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who has left houses, or brothers, or sisters, or father, or mother, or wife, or children, or fields for my sake, will receive a hundred times as much, and will inherit eternal life. 
but many who are first will be last, and many who are last will be first. You can take your seats. All right, let's begin our exploration of this passage with these children coming to Jesus. These kids come to Jesus. The disciples feel like this is a distraction, that the kingdom was getting a little rowdy, as Mary just said. And so they tried to send the kids away. They feel like they're doing Jesus and maybe the ones who are listening to him a service. But Jesus rebukes the disciples and says, no, the kids are welcome around me. This is such a beautiful picture of Jesus, the way he welcomed these children. And he begins to pray for them and bless them. And then he teaches a kingdom principle that if we've been paying attention the last couple years Uh, we've caught on to as a theme in the Gospels. Jesus invites children because he's saying that the blessing of the kingdom of God, that what God has to give is given to people who can be like children. As a matter of fact, Jesus said this very clearly at the beginning of Matthew 18. He said, truly I tell you, unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. He said that in Matthew 18, verse 3. Another way Jesus says this, uh, where you can see this in the Gospels, is like in Matthew 5, 3, when Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The principle goes something like this, that the blessings of the kingdom of God, the rich, mighty, infinite, overflowing blessings of God are for the people who can come to God and recognize that they don't have anything of their own. See, this is the state that children are in. Children know that they don't have anything unless they what? Ask, which is why they ask and ask and ask and ask, you know? And there's a beautiful picture, even though it might get annoying sometimes, there's a beautiful picture of prayer in that. Because Jesus is saying to enter the kingdom, this is what you have to be like. You have to recognize that the kingdom of God is not something that you just add on to all of your stuff. The kingdom is for the person who says, I'm too broken, I'm too poor, I'm too messed up, I'm too sinful, I'm bringing nothing to the table, and unless God gives me the blessing, I don't have anything. If a person comes to God like that, God can give them an infinite amount. But we've said this over the last year, if you come to God with all your stuff, just trying to add him to your stuff, well, I'm not sure what God can do for you. For the person who thinks they have it all together and they come to God, I don't know what God can do for you. But for the person who knows they have nothing, all the possibilities of the kingdom of God are open. And so this is consistently the teaching of Jesus. you got to be like the poor. you got to be like a kid. Your approach to God has to be, I don't deserve anything. I don't have anything. God, either you come through or I really am messed up here. I really have nothing at all. It's that admission of need that activates the grace of God, that moves the heart of God to begin giving the blessings of the kingdom. Now, in contrast to these kids that come to Jesus, this man comes to Jesus with a very different attitude. And Matthew puts these stories together purposefully. This man comes to Jesus. We know from the combined gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we know some things about him, that he was young, that he was rich, and that he was some kind of, of religious ruler. It makes sense that he was rich because the religious rulers, the religious leaders in Jesus's day often had more money than the average person. They were wealthier than the average person. So he was some kind of religious ruler. He has wealth at a young age, but he comes to Jesus because he feels unsure about his salvation. 
He's, pra- he's a religious insider, but he feels unsure about if he has received eternal life or not. So he comes to Jesus really respectfully, and he asks Jesus as a teacher, what else must he do? Because he feels like there's something that he's missing. There's something more that he's supposed to be doing. And Jesus right away begins to move the conversation from the place of religious behavior to the place of relationship. The first way that Jesus does this is he encourages him to look not just at the commandments, but at a person. This is Jesus' language about the one who is good. Jesus is saying, look, first of all, if we're going to talk about salvation, if we're going to talk about how to receive eternal life, we have to talk about more than just commandments or more than just behavior. You need to look at the one from whom the commandments flow. The commandments are good because they're coming from a person. It's that good one, the one true God, the creator of all the earth, and it is his blessing that will save you. So don't look at just what comes from him. Look at him. So Jesus turns the attention there. And then Jesus says, looking at the good one, follow the commandments. The man asks, which commandments should he follow? And Jesus replies with this representative list of the Ten Commandments. He lists them off, and then he lists the greatest commandment of the Old Testament book of Leviticus, to love one's neighbor as oneself. And the man replies that he has kept all of these commandments. Now, that may seem arrogant. In fact, it probably was. I doubt there's anybody in here who would stand up and say, I've perfectly obeyed the law of God. And yet, Jesus doesn't debate this point with this man. He lets it stand because, once again, Jesus doesn't want to have a conversation with this guy about behavior. He doesn't want to get into a debate with this guy about behavior and rules and regulations. He wants to cut to the heart and to give the man the benefit of the doubt, probably what he's saying is just like there's probably some people, I'm guessing there's at least some people in here that haven't broken the law, maybe not too many, but some that haven't broken the law. He's saying, he's saying the same thing. He's like, look, for the religious rules of the day, I haven't done anything really big you know, that has broken any of these. So Jesus lets it stand and the man says that he still perceives that he's lacking something. He says, I've tried to keep these commands. I've tried to do the right thing. And still, I feel like something is missing. What's recorded here for us in Matthew 19 is a picture of the religious crossroad. This often happens to religious people. Look, this passage should speak something to you if you grew up in the church, if you've been around religious stuff, if you knew the commands of God from the time that you were young, I often find with people like that that eventually something begins to burn in them and they start to say, there's got to be something more than just this. There's got to be something more than just going through the religious motions. There has to be something more that should happen. You know, and Jesus seizes the moment with this guy. I was talking to someone recently who grew up in the church, and he said that at the age of 13, this crossroad began to develop in him. He started to wonder if there was something more. So he went to his pastor, and he said, look, I've memorized the verses. I haven't been a bad kid. He was only 13 years old. And he said, but you got to tell me, like, is this it? Like, is this what I'm supposed to be doing? Like, at age 13, have I experienced everything there is to experience of the goodness of God because I memorized some verses and attend church? And he told me that his pastor completely missed the moment. His pastor's answer basically was, yeah, just keep doing what you're doing. 
you know, I hope it works out for you. Just keep doing this your whole life, you know? And he said not long after that, he left the church and was seeking stuff other places. It was a long time before he found his way back to the Lord by the grace of God. But Jesus isn't going to let this moment pass with this man. This man, even if he can't put words to it, is realizing that there's an emptiness to his religion and that something has not happened at the heart level yet. And so then Jesus asks the key question that causes this man's heart to open up, or he says the key statement. He says, sell your possessions. You're rich. Give it away. Everything that you have, give it to the poor, and then come and follow me. Now, this is interesting because this is not a command in Scripture. It's not one of the Ten Commandments. It's not something that's required of all of God's people. But Jesus is saying, if you want the real deal, if you want to be connected to the life of God, then step out of just the rules and regulation and step into relationship. And relationally, I'm asking you as a friend to give away all of your stuff to the poor. Get your heart disconnected from all of the possessions that you love and follow me. And Jesus hits the nail on the head because Jesus takes it to the place of the heart, to the place of priorities, past the place of behavior. And there this man stands and his heart is exposed because although he's followed all the laws of God, he doesn't really love God because he's unwilling to give up his possessions. He's unwilling to do what God is asking because in truth, these things have become idols. He prioritizes them more than God himself. So if the kingdom principle is that those who can receive the kingdom are those who know that they have nothing, then it means that like this man, those who think they have something and prioritize that something more than God can't receive the blessing of God. This man is the opposite of the children. Jesus wasn't driving this man away. This man's priorities led him away from an even greater blessing. Now, the disciples are astounded by this. And one reason they're astounded is because in the Old Testament, especially, wealth is sometimes an indicator of the blessings of God. They wouldn't have been surprised in their worldview that a religious leader had more money than other people. They would have thought, well, this is because he's following God. Now, listen, this is a complicated thing. I'm not going to have time to unpack all of this this morning. But sometimes wealth can be a, a picture of God's blessing. No doubt. It's just that. This is what people do all throughout human history. They take the very blessings of God and they turn those blessings into idols, right? This is what Paul says at the beginning of Romans, that the sin of idolatry is taking the created thing and worshiping it like it's the creator instead of recognizing it as a good gift flowing from a good God. It's to turn the attentions and affections on the blessing instead of the blessor. And this is what this man has done. He's taken the blessing of God, if it is indeed God's blessing, and turned it into an idol. Now, there's no question, this is a very sobering passage for the rich. But you have to see, this is God's love. Jesus loves rich people enough to save these hard things because he recognizes the intoxicating nature of wealth. I want to say this to bring it home a little bit closer. I have no doubt in our congregation, we are probably mostly made up of people who are either associated somewhere in the middle class or who are poor. And I think I've said something like this before. 
But in Jesus' day, there was no middle class. You either were really rich or you were really poor. When middle class people, and my background's middle class, when middle class people read this passage, it's very easy for us to think it doesn't apply to us because we think, oh, I'm not rich. It's those rich people who have the problem. It's those rich people who love their stuff, but I'm not rich. But I just want to say this. If you are anywhere in the middle class in the United States of America, you are wealthy beyond what most people in the world could ever imagine. And you are probably wealthier than most ancient wealthy people were, maybe even wealthier than this rich young ruler. And Jesus just loves us enough to say, wealth is a powerful intoxicant. It can get your attention. It can get your affections. It can make you apathetic. Jesus isn't saying that the wealthy can't be saved, but he is offering a warning that I think we should take to heart today that it's very easy to prioritize the wrong things. See, it's not just that like money and stuff intoxicates us. It's the stuff that money and stuff do for us. The security it provides, the power of choice that it gives us, the way that we're able to influence our lives, our kids, all of the power that's associated with money is why we so often don't want to give it up. Jesus is saying anything is possible with God. God can put a camel through the eye of a needle because he can do anything. But he's just saying, hear the warning of the way that wealth can intoxicate. Well, Peter seizes on this moment to talk about how great he is. Peter, one of Jesus' disciples, says, well, that's sad about that guy that he walked away, but Lord, I just want to point out to you, we gave up everything to follow you. So if this is how this works... If this is how this works, then what do we get? Because we gave up everything. Now, Peter was never wealthy, friends. He was poor. Most of the disciples were poor when Jesus called them. He was a fisherman in Galilee. You can be sure he was poor. But he said, I gave up everything, so what do we get? And Jesus gives this really gracious response. It's amazing to say, look, God, because he's good and righteous and generous, he does take note of the things that we give up for him. It's true. You know, you really think about this. God doesn't have to do that, right? God could just ask for our, our obedience, and he would be right in asking us to obey and to give up things. He would be completely right in doing that and not rewarding us for it, right? But God is just so good and generous and gracious and righteous that when people give up things for him, he does take note. And he says, look, you're going to be rewarded for the things that you gave up. But then Jesus begins to gently rebuke Peter. It's gentle, and really it's setting it up for a sermon that you'll hear in a couple weeks on the next parable that's coming in the next chapter where Jesus kind of addresses Peter's attitude. But in the end of chapter 19, he says, remember, Peter, the first will be last, and the last will be first. What he's saying is, look, if you're in it for the prize, if you're in it for the reward, if you're in it to try to get ahead, if you've turned following me into that, remember that God, once again, is not looking at the behavior, even if the behavior is great sacrifice for the Lord. What he's looking at is the heart. He says, that is what's going to stand before me in the end, is your heart. And if your motivations were wrong, well, that's going to be taken into account too. Okay, so if I were to summarize this passage, I was thinking of a way that I could describe this to you, and I have on the screen three pictures, a $100 bill, and then 100 pennies, 
all right? So it equals $1 and then one penny. For, this isn't a perfect analogy, but see if you can track with me. The $100 bill is going to represent eternal life with Jesus. Money, money, money. Look at that. Crisp. All right? Eternal life with Jesus. Those pennies represent the rich man's stuff. 100 pennies. And Peter, who's poor, has one penny. Peter's stuff. All right? This is basically the dynamic that's happening in the passage. Jesus is holding out to this rich man eternal life something that is far more valuable than the rich stuff that he owns. The rich man thinks that he has a lot. You know, he can't let his heart let it go. But really, in the scope of eternity, in the scope of God's love, in the scope of all that God wants to give us in the kingdom, I'm just going to suggest to you this morning that we can represent all of the rich man's possessions by just 100 pennies. You know, it's a lot of stuff, but in the big scheme of things, it really isn't valuable, especially when you hold it next to eternal life with Jesus. And Jesus' challenge to the rich man is your heart has gotten connected, has gotten attached, has begun to worship the 100 pennies. And I'm asking you to give them up. It feels like a lot, but it's not a lot in terms of what I want to give to you. The rich man can't do it. And the reason he can't do it is because he's convinced that he has a lot of stuff. Imagine that one of your friends came to you and said, I have 100 shiny Lincoln pennies. And they're really proud about this. And they're counting it. And they're excited about it. And someone comes to them and says, well, I want you to exchange your 100, 100 pennies for a $100 bill. And your friend comes to you and says, oh, I didn't take that deal. I saw through it because that's just a piece of paper. I have 100 shiny pennies. I'm just going to keep counting them. I'm going to keep stacking them in different ways. I'm going to make sure that I don't lose any of my pennies. You would tell your friend, yo, take the $100 bill, right? You're missing the point, okay? Even though it looks like a lot, it's just pennies. Just exchange it, okay? That's what the rich man does. Peter does something different. He only started with one penny, right? He was poor, and this is what he does. He makes the exchange, Right? He says, oh, Jesus, I'm going to follow you. I'm going to go for that $100 bill, and I'm giving you my shiny penny for your $100 bill. And then he boasts about it like this was so amazing that he did this. The only thing that I can like, compare this to is like if a fully capable, uh, fully able adult like, goes into the bathroom and uses the bathroom and flushes and washes their hands and comes out and says, guys, you won't believe what I did. I did something amazing today. I flushed the toilet and I washed my hands. Isn't that incredible? You'd be like, dude, of course you would do that. That's like a normal thing. Just like if one of your friends said, hey, you won't believe how smart I am, how sacrificial I am, how amazing I am because I exchanged my one cent for a $100 bill. You'd say, well, of course you did. See, Peter is putting his pride in something that's really kind of stupid. It's like he gave up his very little for something of much, much greater value. And then he's putting the attention on himself instead of putting the attention onto God. See, this is the exchange that God makes because of the gospel, friends. He takes our pennies. He doesn't just give us a $100 bill. He gives us the infinite riches of the kingdom of God. And very often, we're tempted to either hoard our pennies, to hold on to the things that God is asking for us, 
to keep them, to not share them, so on and so forth. Or if we give it up, our tendency is to boast about it. But the cross meant that all of the riches of God's kingdom, everything good that he has to give, comes to us. And what he asks us for are pennies. It's a radically unfair exchange. And what's unfair is what God experiences in it. As a matter of fact, the injustice in the exchange was displayed at the cross. Because there, Jesus took the weight. There, Jesus took our sin. And so he comes to us and he asks us for these things, you know, for our time or for our finances or for our relationships or whatever. And we either say no and we resist or we do it and we boast about it. But in reality, all of the attention, the, the great thing that happened was that God gave us something of infinite value that we never could have earned, never could have paid for. So just as I close here, our four questions. Who is God? Well, God is our reward. Much more than the $100 bill. You know what you get when you get the riches of the kingdom of God? You get God. And that's the greatest reward you could ever have. Now, God is so good. It sounds like in the future kingdom, there will be a lot of other rewards too. You know, positions of, you know, authority and service and wealth and riches. It sounds like God, just out of the overflowing generosity of his heart, is going to give that. But the teaching of scripture is from the beginning to the end is that God himself is our reward. This is one of the first things that God showed Abraham in Genesis 15. He said, do not be afraid, Abram. His name was still Abram. I am your shield, your very great reward. And then at the end of the scriptural narrative in Revelation, when God makes all things right, destroys evil, his people are resurrected in the kingdom, It says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among people. He will be with them. See, this is where all of history is heading, that God's people will be with their God because he is the reward in the end. It's there that we experience everything that we've ever longed for, friends. It's there that we experience the approval, the affirmation, the security that we spend so much of our life chasing after more than a $100 bill. God is this infinite reward, and the reward is made available to us because of the cross. So who are we? Well, if God is our infinite reward, if he's an internal and infinite reward, then we are eternally and infinitely rich. I want you to let that sink in for a second. Because just, just, let's just talk in the natural for a minute. If you've experienced the pain of poverty, and if you've experienced you know, some of the the freedom that comes with wealth, then you know that rich people do things differently than poor people. Their money opens up more opportunities. It allows them to make a different range of choices. It provides some kind of freedom. Now, I know sin like can mess this up, but let's just say in a perfect world, right? It allows freedom to be there in that person's life. Well, here's what I'm saying. Rich or poor, no matter how much is in your bank account this morning, if you're in Jesus and if you have received the reward that he's giving of his eternal and infinite love, then you are eternally and infinitely rich. So what I'm saying is live like that. Live like that's the case. I think there's a dignity that comes with that to the people of God, right? A dignity that comes. It's like I might be poor in the natural, but I don't have to live. 
under the constraints of that poverty because I'm eternally and infinitely rich because of what the cross has provided for me. So what's God saying to us? Well, just real quick, I want to give you three things here. First of all, I want to say that if I get my reward from my stuff, right? If I get my reward like the rich man from his stuff, see, this is why he didn't want to give it up because there's a reward in holding on to it, right? The influence, the power, the security, all that, just the enjoyment, the comfort. He just didn't want to give it up. So if I get my reward from my stuff, then I'm going to feel the need. I'm going to live to protect my stuff. And the result is going to be spiritual apathy and anxiety. I'm going to be apathetic because you can't move forward in taking risks with Jesus when what you're doing is counting your pennies day after day. What you're doing is spending time making sure that all of your stuff is still there, that no one's getting to it. When your time and energy and attention is given to just maintaining your stuff, whatever that is, it's going to result in spiritual apathy. And worse, it's going to result in anxiety. You're going to wonder, is someone going to take one of my pennies? Am I going to have less pennies than other people? Am I going to have pennies when I turn 60? So on and so forth. There's a lot of anxiety that can surround this. And this means that I will not choose to share with others. Instead, I will hoard. I will hold on to my stuff. Isn't it interesting? Jesus isn't a charlatan. He didn't say to the man, give me all your stuff and come follow me. And then you can be part of what happens. What's the heart of God? This is so like the heart of God. He says, give your stuff to who? The poor. Because this is the direction of the heart of God. Saying, share. Give it away. Don't hold on to it. And the man is unable to do it because he's getting his reward from his stuff. Well, if like Peter, I get my reward from my religious sacrifice. And sometimes this is easier for people to do if they don't have a lot of stuff, right? Seems like it's easier to jump into things and find other things to boast about. If I get my reward from my religious sacrifice, then I will feel the need to boast. And this will result in spiritual entitlement and pride. Have you ever met a spiritually entitled person? A spiritually entitled person is somebody who thinks that they deserve something from God. And you've heard me say this before, but if you think that God owes you something, you will believe that everybody else owes you something too. You'll believe that all your friends owe you something. You'll believe that your family members owe you something. You'll believe that your church, your pastor owes you something. And you might make great sacrifices for the Lord and boast about it. And you might talk about the great things that you've done for God. But what will unveil the priorities of your heart is when you don't get thanked. When you don't get the attention that you were looking for. When you don't get the affirmation that you wanted. And then your heart, people will begin to see it that you were doing it so that you could get things from other people, so that you could get the reward. And this means that you will not show grace to others, but you will judge. You might be a religious person, but you'll also be a judgmental person because when people don't do as much as you did, gave as much as you gave, sacrificed as much as you gave, and they still are getting approval and affirmation, it seems like God is doing stuff for them but not for you, all of these bitter attitudes will begin to rise up in you and you'll end up taking it out on other people in judgment. But if I believe that I am infinitely rich 
and that this is a reality that's disconnected from my bank account or circumstance, it's true just because of the cross, then I will promptly and humbly give up my stuff when asked by him. I'll let go of it. Letting go of my pennies will open my life to receive the blessings of his kingdom because my heart attitude will be, God, I don't have anything. These are just pennies. Whether it's 100 pennies or one penny, I'm just giving you what I have because in the end, it's not anything anyway. And I want my life to be open to receive all the blessings of God. And once our hands come off of those pennies, whether it's 100 or one, it means we don't mind if God says, hey, give it to your neighbor. Hey, give it to the poor. Hey, give it away. We'll be able to do that because we know that our identity is secure. As a matter of fact, our identity as a, as a richly blessed person because of the, in the kingdom of God will mean that there's an infinite amount to give away, that I can keep giving and giving and giving, and I don't have to hoard because there's always more in God to be able to give away. So if the worship team could come forward. So what am I going to do about it? We need to let go of our pennies, friends. It's time to let go of our pennies. Now, listen, I don't want to make light of this. I know the struggle in giving up pennies. You know, sometimes the thing that God is calling us to, he's often calling us to something by faith, meaning we can't see it. And our pennies are shiny and gleaming right in front of us. And especially if our security, if our hope has gotten attached to those things. And for you, it may be material things, it may be relational, it may be religious. We find all kinds of different ways to get attached to our our idolatries. If I can just share with you something out of my own life recently, going into this fast, as a matter of fact, I've heard the Lord's gentle voice coming to me and asking me for a few more of my pennies. This is what I mean. Remember how I said that when Jesus said, give your possessions to the poor, this wasn't an all-time binding commandment of God, right? This was something that relationally he was asking this man to do. And this is what it's like to walk with Jesus. Listen, I can tell you confidently with the full authority of Scripture that it is God's will that you do not murder. It is God's will that you do not commit adultery. It is God's will that you do not steal. Those are the binding commandments. But following him is something much more than that. It's this walk of intimacy where we begin to hear God ask us for pennies. And here's the thing. He's not asking to hurt you. He's not asking because he wants to hoard your stuff. As a matter of fact, he probably just wants to redistribute it to somebody else who needs it more. But recently, I've just heard God, just in my prayer times, I understand these things are, you know, subjective, but it's like I've just heard the Lord speaking to my heart recently, asking me for little things. Sometimes it's just, it's not sinful stuff. It's, it's good stuff, but it's just the way I use my time or the way I prioritize things or a habit that I have that isn't bad or sinful. There's no secret around it, but God's just asking me to turn that thing around so that it more benefits my family or benefits the people I'm in community with or benefits my church. You know what's interesting? Like this rich man, I identify with him because I feel like for a lot of people who are in the church, when God says, do not murder, we're like, okay, cool, gotcha. (laughs) Got that one, right? But when God says, hey, I'm asking you for a little more here. I'm asking for a reprioritizing of things here. 
those can be the real wrestling points of the heart. There's something I was sharing with a friend recently that God is asking of me right now. And I'm really wrestling in my heart to give this over to the Lord because like, it's not sinful. It's not a big deal. It's like Jesus really like, but here's what Jesus does. He moves in closer and closer and closer. He's not trying to ruin your fun. He's not trying to take your stuff. He's just calling you into a deeper place of trust with him. And Jesus' promise is that the stuff we give up for him, listen, this is so powerful, the stuff we give up for him, whether it be money or a way we use our time or the way we consume entertainment or the way we fast for 21 days, that all of this consecration means something to him. We're not earning his love. It just creates the space where he can do new things in our lives.